looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You drive me wild. <laughs> what up, Crazy Train Radio? You look like hell. And I could look the same. What's the photo for? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Truth, 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 I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch has got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Friday fans, we know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. This is Custer Kennedy, the author of True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. 
boy do we have a good one for you today. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. This next little nugget I got here from, on a book-related uh, project is pretty interesting. It double dips for me, both sports and history as well, because this was a major part of history. The book is true. The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson. And it's really probing. It's richly detailed unique biography of Jackie Robinson, who obviously is one of baseball's, if not America's most significant figures of the 20th century. I have the book currently in hand. The guest right now is a multiple time author, Mr. Costa Kennedy. Mr. Kennedy, how you doing, sir? I'm doing well. It's great to be on with you. How are you? Can't complain. Nobody listens anyway when it when it comes to the complaining, obviously going to be talking about Jackie here. There's another book I want to touch on because I tried to get you for that, but scheduling didn't work out. But the four seasons of Jackie Robinson. And it's interesting how you put this together, because obviously when I say four seasons, most people are thinking, you know, back to back seasons, whatever the case is. So you took a different approach with this. You went with four different time periods of his life and career to tell his story. So what was the thinking behind that? Yeah, it's a good question. Thanks. It's, uh, so four seasons are, you know, as you allude, they're, they're actual seasons or actual years, I should say, uh, 1946, 49, 56, and 1972 when he course was not playing but that was the last year of his life and but it also had the metaphorical meaning that the, those those are the spring summer autumn and winter of robinson's public and athletic life so i wanted to sort of look at him um in distinctive periods of his life so that there was some time se- separation between the different periods that i look at and also some uh growth and some a lot of circumstantial change both in Robinson's life uh, and of course in the environment around him he had a big he had a big hand in why that environment was changing but it was changing at large around him so that was the goal to sort of look at him in snapshots there's a series of movies called the up series seven up 14 up 21 up by a, a filmmaker named Michael Apted in which he looked at a bunch of seven-year-olds um, documented their life came back seven years later, looked at them at age 14, came back seven years later, looked at them at 21. Really interesting film series. And that, that served as a little bit of a uh, inspiration, I suppose, in my approach. Right on. And I do want to backtrack for a second before we continue. And I like to do this because sometimes people will say, well, why are you talking to this that person? Why are you talking to that person? Whatever the case is. But for those who haven't heard of Mr. Kennedy, Besides living under a rock, he has made regular contributions to MLB Network, as well as appearances on Morning Joe, Late Night with Seth Myers, and other radio programs. He has done editing for Sports Illustrated, The Story of Baseball, and 100 Photographs, The Super Bowl Gold, 50 Years of the Big Game, The Hockey Book, and Swimsuit. 50 years of beautiful. So he 
not only has credibility in the sports world, but he has degrees from, I believe, Columbia and such in journalism. So there is credibility behind this gentleman with an author. So I just wanted to bring that up. So back to the book. And obviously, you probably reached out to different sources that were available to you at the start of the project, whether it be his wife, fans, other players from the time period, executives, etc. So I'm curious to know when you were doing your homework for this book and the direction you went, was there different reactions from people you spoke with about Jackie in terms of not only just Jackie as a whole, but the time periods that you look at within the book? Yes, very much so. Uh, so just as a little background to that question, I, I, um, I've sort of been thinking about Jackie for a long time. As you mentioned, I spent a fair amount of time in Sports Illustrated as a writer and editor and had sort of written about Jackie in different ways. And then about, in about 2013, I did a, a fairly long story for Sports Illustrated on Rachel Robinson, who you just alluded to, his, his widow, who is still with us, uh, soon to turn 100. Um, and uh, so tough to that. Yes. <laughs> and I spent some time with her and then got to spend some time sort of in a professional way with um, her, her and Jackie children, Sharon and, and David Robinson, um, and did some events with them. So I, I've been kind of gathering string on this book um, for a little bit. And that's why that part of helped form the approach. Um, so, so when you ask the question about the different reactions, uh, it, it really does I have to sort of answer by saying it depends on what who I was talking to, of course, and the time period we were talking about. So uh, 1946, the first year, just as one example, uh, they're living in Montreal. Um, this really, in a sense, is the year that, that Robinson broke a color barrier. Obviously, 1947 is when he came to Brooklyn Dodgers. In 46, he was the only white player, uh, sorry, the only black player in an all-white league. Um, briefly, he had a, a fellow black teammate uh, with the Montreal Royals, uh, Brooklyn's top uh, farm team. Uh, but he and Rachel living there was uh, a really special time in their life. So I got a lot from Rachel uh, there, and I got a lot of um, uh, stuff from people who lived in, in Montreal who remembered going to see him when they were kids, or obviously older older gentlemen and ladies at, at this time. Um, and and they really brought it to life in a sort of a, there was a sense of anticipation uh, in, in that year, right? So there's a sense of Jackie, being Jackie Robinson already, being famous, being well-known, but not having quite grown into the sort of full-fledged social changer he would be. So just as comparison, you know, the, the, the people I spoke to around that were very different from the people who I had a chance to talk with uh, as relates to, say, the year of 1972, at which point Robinson had been retired from baseball for 15 years and had a, had a long career touching on civil rights and, and uh, various other business enterprises. So it varied quite a bit. I spoke to a lot of different people um, from different walks of, of Robinson's life, um, including Dodger teammates and, and, and uh, people he worked with in, in, at all places. And yeah, I got a pretty varied response and, and often he, he would make kind of a singular impact on people. Um, everybody had sort of their Jackie, I'm putting up air quotes now, uh, uh, that they felt they knew and they did know. Uh, of course, and and uh, it, was, it was very illuminative for me to illuminative for me to speak with them. 
Well, obviously, Jackie's impact extended far beyond baseball and opened doors for not only Black Americans to participate in other sports and being a part, or I should say, being a national figure who spoke and wrote eloquently and everything else like that. And the obvious, obviously, I know his story and read the book and everything else like that. And scene 42, you know, I'm well versed with Jackie's story and as everybody should be. But the one question I haven't got a chance to ask someone who's dove deep into the topic like you have. But when we think about and I'm a history background as well. So Mm -hmm. my question that always stood out was, well, it's obvious when you look at Jackie's story, but. You know, you had great guys and ladies throughout history, whether it be Satchel Paige on a sports front or Jackie or this one or that one, or the next generation when you have, you know, your Willie Mazes, Hank Aarons, you know, so on and so forth down the line. But when we think about all that, why was Jackie the right guy to break the barriers and barriers that he did? When you think well, about all the people who were qualified to possibly do so. Yeah. So it's important to remember, like, he, he certainly wasn't the only player who could have done it. There were plenty of – listen, there have been uh, African-American ball players who could have starred in the major leagues since before there was a major leagues, right, from day one. So yeah. it's not if we're waiting along for some talent to come along. Uh, that said, not anyone could have done it because uh, it did require, in addition to, to great skill, it required an, an, an almost unfathomable amount of um, ability to, to handle pressure and handle a spotlight um, so that he was uh, – there were many people who were resistant, and he received famously the hate mail and death threats. Um, but even the people who were very much in his corner, you know, he'd come up even in the minor leagues uh, to bat for, for the Montreal Royals and, and the African-American newspapers would write, you know, the hopes of every American uh, black person rise on his shoulders and things like that. So there was a huge amount of pressure and a huge amount of expectation, um, which, which Robinson embraced from the get-go. He, that's not to say there weren't difficult times, that's not to say it wasn't challenging, but he and with Rachel, his, his wife's support and, and sometimes guidance, embraced that. And he, so you needed to have a person who would, um, who would do that. I, I think just physically also, he, the fact that he was so fast and so creative on the base path, such a beautiful player just to watch, regardless of his ethnicity, he was, he was a wonderful baseball player to watch. And that you bring that every day. If, if you were going to a ballpark and you were a big baseball fan or with your first game, you, you could see that this, this person was doing something special on the base pass, doing something special in the field. Uh, and that really helped. It really helped captivate, uh, captivate people. It made people sort of, uh, quote, unquote, fall in love with him as a baseball player, the way people would have other favorite players. Uh, so there's a lot both in his physical and his emotional makeup that made him the, the right person at the right time. He had also, he grew up, growing up in California, certainly plenty of prejudice there and, and lots for him to, to have dealt with, but not um, the codified segregation of the American South, so that he had played with white 
athletes when he played at UCLA in football, when he played basketball, when he when he ran track. So there was a level of familiarity for him, as it were for some other players too, but not for all other players. Um, and, and all of those factors kind of came together to, to make him uh, very well suited for, for this uh, incredible call. Right on. And obviously he was a guy that was true to the effort and mission at hand but also true to his convictions. And so definitely I would think that was having that type of personality definitely helped in doing what he ended up doing with his life. But you mentioned playing other sports and obviously he was a running back for UCLA and made headlines with other sports and stuff. And most people, when you say Jackie Robinson, think of baseball. Was baseball his best sport? Or could he have done it in, say, football or track or, you know, another yeah, but, sport? Yeah, I mean, there's no way, of course, to say how what would have happened on professional level, right? We tend to think of, and you know this as somebody who studies history, we, we have a tendency to think of it as, as inevitable, but once it's happened. But, of course, it wasn't inevitable. Things could have gone wrong at any moment. And that's certainly true on a field like the football field when injury is, is just to play away um, and a lot of things play in. He certainly had the skill uh, as, a, as a running back at UCLA to have succeeded on a professional level, no, no doubt about it. He was a, a world-class track athlete. His brother, Mac, um, finished second to Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics, and had there been a, a 1940 Olympics, it's almost certain that Jackie would have competed in them. He, he was an elite-level um, physical talent. So uh, and he and he also was very good at basketball, very good at tennis. Um, didn't quite rise to. He never really explored doing those beyond the collegiate level, which he did again very well at those levels. Um, so uh, I, I mean, uh, from an athletic standpoint and from a temperament standpoint, sure he could have done it. He was not trying to make it in football. He was he was aware of of what it could do to your body. Uh, after college, uh, when he was in the military, he was asked to play on military football teams and, and declined because he would, wanted to preserve his knees and his legs. So from a professional standpoint, uh, including his brief 45-game tenure in the Negro League with Kansas City, um, it was always baseball for him that he had a sight set, set on. Well, I brought up, obviously, the movie 42, which I thought was pretty well done. And obviously, Rachel was involved there and different people. They did their homework. How accurate would you say the movie projected Jackie's story? I, I think in, in a general sense, extremely accurately. And, and I will say it's a wonderful movie. I, I in, it greatly enjoyed it and, and admire and respect the movie. Um, it, it's focused on a very particular time, right? So the um, the idea that he that he was asked to sort of turn turn the other cheek uh, was absolutely accurate. That's what happened in, in 1947 uh, as he's breaking in, but it's certainly not in the whole story. For, for much of his career, he, he was not that player at all. He was a player who certainly did um, respond in kind, um, a very aggressive uh, player in a good way, I mean, in a, in a, in a way that helped his team be successful. Um, so it just captured a little snapshot of his personality. It certainly doesn't bring forth the whole level. Then there were some other things, for instance, the famous scene of, of Pee Wee Reese going over beside him in, in Cincinnati and putting his arm around him and, um, you know, saying maybe tomorrow we should all wear 42 so they can't tell us apart. Uh, that, that's a conflated scene that we don't know if, if, if 
Pee Wee ever actually went over to him. It's Gene Hermansky who actually said that line, et cetera, et cetera. But these are small little details. That was a wonderful scene in the movie. I'm glad they kept it in. It, it makes the larger point, which needed to be made. So I think from a, if, you, if you're asking from sort of an, an audience consumption point, you get a great, great sense of what Jackie went through as he came into the league in that brief period of his life. Um, and from a, from a larger sense, you might want to dig a little deeper into what, what really happened later on in his life. And from a, you know, if you're asking the history person sense, there are some details that, that maybe, um, you know, were simply stretched to fit, to fit a narrative a little bit. Well, I definitely want to be respectful of your time, and I want to bring something else up, like I said during the introduction. But as far as Jackie goes, and the book True Four Seasons of Jackie Robertson, I'm going to put a link to this on all outlets. So make sure you check it out. Grab it when you can, where you can. These your suspects, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, all that fun stuff. But my last question regarding Jackie is, and doing your homework for putting this book together, was there something you learned, whether it was digging through notes or talking to people or whatever the case was, that you were surprised to discover that you may not have known about him prior? So I'll answer that in two ways. You know, I don't know if there was a, a giant bombshell, um, certainly somebody who's been covered, but I definitely found out a lot of stuff. And I, I'm somebody who, of course, as, as, as any writer of such a book would be really read a lot and, and watched a lot and, and steeped myself in what was out there. There were definitely lots of, of anecdotes um, that, that I came across, uh, sort of small treasures. You're so, it's such a pleasure to find them when you're working on the book. Uh, a relationship he had with Bob Aspermonte, for example, who was a rookie during um, Robinson's last season. Uh, and, and Bob was, was a wonderful person to speak to for the book. And there, there were details all throughout, including during his time in Montreal, that um, came forth that I had not seen elsewhere and that, that really helped bring him to life for me. So there were a lot of, a lot of those things. I think from a larger perspective, you, we talked about, and this is part of what led to the title of the book, his sort of, uh, th- that he was true to his commitment and his effort. He was also a pretty complicated person. I think that he wasn't a cookie cutter. Uh, politically, he wasn't cookie cutter. He had he had sometimes contradictory opinions. He was clear about, you know, he was a civil rights person, um, but he could be quite conservative in certain economic standpoint. He was he was true to his own beliefs, even when they were somewhat contradictory to one another, in a sense. Um, and I and I think that, that that came forward a little bit to me in a way that I hadn't quite understood. Uh, that he his his allegiance was to his task at hand and his mission but not to a particular political party or to a particular part of, of the civil rights movement at all. He was very um, driven by his own standards and perspective. That, that came true very strongly for me in doing the book. Sorry. Yeah, yeah it was definitely a situation, a situation thing, I would think, with Jackie as far as where his beliefs fell. And it wasn't just political or this, that. It was a, based on the topic. But like I said, I'm going to put links to different parts where you can get at Amazon and such. But the one other guy I wanted to ask you about briefly, and you did this book several years ago with uh, Sports Illustrated Books, and that's Pete Rose, The American Dilemma. Uh, and, yes. and Pete, I love, I'm not old enough to have really seen Pete play as I'm going to be 38. 
but loved him as a player from everything you hear, stories and whatnot. And obviously, people know Pete's story, banned from baseball and for the gambling and whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Definitely think that was a managerial thing that he was obviously suspended for or during that time as a manager. But obviously, I'm looking here at a 2022 perspective. And things have obviously, I'm not saying what he did or what he was accused of was right, wrong, and different. I'm not saying that. But do you think, what do you think uh, from this time period? Should Pete be in a hall based on his play? But also, I'm saying times are different is because when we think about it, how many casinos and gambling apps and different things are in business with not just baseball, but in sports in general. So, yeah, a, a lot to unpack there, Jonathan. I think it's a really good question, and, and times have certainly changed. First of all, an absolutely wonderful player. I can see why you, you loved him as a player. I can't imagine a baseball fan not absolutely loving and adoring and appreciating the dedication and commitment that, that Pete Rose had to baseball and to the fans who were paying to watch him play every single day. Bart Giamatti the commissioner who who um, ultimately suspended him then died shortly after, would agree with all of that. Bart Giamatti loved Pete Rose. If Pete had just been at all decent in during the investigation, he would have been welcomed with warm embrace into baseball. So um, great, great player, exemplary in his effort, all of those things. In terms of the, you know, uh, in terms of what's happened with the gambling, a couple of key things. Times have changed, but you're still not allowed to bet on a game if you're a ball player. Correct. And and while while the investigation focused on him as the manager, and that's where the hard evidence in the giant Dowd report lies, there's no question he betted the player as well. That's that's pretty clear. So so it, it hasn't really changed from that perspective. The other thing I will say is that um, you know Pete didn't just say, "Hey, Jonathan, I'll bet you fifty bucks on the game tonight." He owed more than half a million dollars to Sal from Staten Island. Right. He was in with the wrong guys, bringing them into the dugout. There was no question that he was jeopardizing the game. I mean, that, that, there's no question about it. Um, I don't think there's anything you'll have John Dowd and people say, oh, and he, you know, he, he, would, he would sometimes he might throw a game or bet to lose. Like, first of all, who would, what bookie would take that bet? Right. Doesn't really yeah. make sense. It's just, it, there's right. no logic there whatsoever. Um, so that gets down to does he belong in the Hall of Fame? And I'm pretty clear to not. I, I think that I, I honestly see it both ways. You can argue it either way because he was such a phenomenally great exemplary player. Um, and because his sin really, that's why I call the book, the American dilemma. And I've had people say to me, Oh, I went back and forth on Pete five or six times while I was reading the book, because I think you can look at it both ways. The one thing which I'm happy to say and really believe is that the hall of fame made a huge mistake by not allowing him to be on the ballot. And that he's the only player ever with Hall of Fame credentials who was not allowed to be voted on. Even Joe Jackson was allowed for more than 50 years until under current rules now he's not. Um, and they put in rules specifically to keep P-, P. Rose off the ballot. Doesn't make sense. The steroid, we can have a, an analogous argument about Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. People can feel either way. That you can hear both sides. They're on the ballot. People vote for them. It comes in. The, the fact that they refused to let um, 
will be voted on is just a mistake that flies against the whole democratic process. There's lots of issues with the Hall of Fame voting, but in the largest sense, it's a pretty democratic process with all its flaws and everything. It still is a process where a lot of people have a vote and for the most part, get it right, even though there are some some issues there. So that's what I think. It, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous that he was never allowed to be voted on. And then I think it's up to the, the voters uh, to decide whether or not he should be in the whole thing. Yeah, that's, you know, like I said, I never said he was an angel. You, you know, summed it up nice there because, like you said, we had the doubt and stuff that was why he was banned and stuff. But there could be questions about off the field during his playing days and such don't have the time for that but the other question for that is like i said we can have that conversation for a couple hours kicking everything around but do you at least think on a democratic side there as you put it having the opportunity to vote for him will happen while he's still alive and let the chips fall where they may I, I, I'm starting to think no, just because the Hall of Fame is so close on that. You know, when, when he applied for reinstatement with Rob Manfred, um, first of all, I thought Rob did an exceptionally good job in that ruling. There was no way he could allow him to be be back in the game because Pete was on his way to work every day, was stopping off and betting on baseball at, the, at a bookie a few years ago. He continued to do it. He's addicted to gambling. He bets on baseball. So it's not even a question. He had no, he couldn't have let him back in the game. But uh, Manfred said, but this not letting him back in the game is separate. He should be eligible, explicitly said, he should be eligible for any uh, external museums and things like that, right? Saying just because we're not letting him come back and be a coach or a player doesn't mean he can't get those accolades. Literally the day afterwards, the Reds announced that he was going to be inducted into the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame, which he hadn't been to that point. The Hall of Fame itself has not moved. They have the power to do so. Um, I don't think there's a movement to do so. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, Pete is 81 now. I mean, it, you know, it could change. It doesn't take a lot of people. They made up the rule to keep him out with a very few number of people. They can make up the rule, put him back in. Um, you know, it's just, a, it's just a private institution. They can do what they want. But I don't think that there's, as of now, any movement to, to make any change on that front. Right on. I want to ask this before I wrap with Pete. Um, do you think with his case, as far as because obviously there was years he didn't I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. But he came out with his autobiography in like 2000, early 2000s. Do you think his case would have been different if he was upfront about his involvement in certain things earlier than when he came out with the book to profit from it? I think that if he had in the initial, when they confronted him with overwhelming evidence, I mean, you can say whatever you want, like there's overwhelming evidence that he did what he did. It's not, it, it would, it, you probably have looked at it. A lot of it is public. Anybody could look at it. If he had in 1989 just said, guys, he got me. Um, yep, I was doing it. I think he would have taken some kind of punishment. Maybe he would have had to sit down for six months or a year. Maybe he would have had to like go to um, some kind of, you know, gambling anonymous classes or something like that. I uh, would have, of course, had to agree to stop betting. If he had done that, he could have come back. Baseball would have welcomed him with open arms. He could have managed the Reds for the next 25 years, period. 
And and so that's Pete did that to himself. Um, and and I think that you know, in addition to coming clean, the other thing he would have had to do is stop gambling, specifically on baseball, which he had. I can't say what he'd been doing in the past year. I have no idea. But until very recent times, and I would guess probably until now, he's continued to bet on baseball. Well, you, you can't, you know. You're so not I, helping your cause. Right. Well, you, and you just can't, you don't even have a choice, even if I'm the, the commissioner and I love you. I can't let you in. You know, it's like so. He, so it goes more than just saying, I'm sorry. I think the way he did it didn't look well. There weren't good optics. But really what it comes down to is he did not change his behavior when it came down to the thing that had to change, which was betting on baseball. Right on. Well, the original reason we brought in Costa Kennedy for an interview is the book True, the Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson. Like I said previously, going to put links to the Amazon account, Barnes & Noble, all that fun stuff to pick up the book. Mr. Kennedy, thank you so much for the time. It was my pleasure. Really enjoyed being on with you. The Wiz kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. This brand is truly exciting and so glad that they are starting to make a positive impact. Little Bean Soapery is a woman-owned small business based in Northeast Pennsylvania. Little Bean Soapery does so much as all products are handcrafted and offer many different things for both men and women. Soaps, scrubs, body butters, bath bombs, solid cologne and much more. Little Bean Soapery also does things for special occasions such as birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day and special seasonal gift sets. But also let's not forget large orders for party favours by request. The great things about all products is that they are crafted to be nourishing on the skin. If you wish to check them out, please feel free to visit littlebeansoapery.com. Any questions, please feel free to also email littlebeansoapery at gmail.com for custom inquiries and or ask anything else you wish. Tell them that Elena from Crazy Train Radio sends you. Hello everybody, I'm Billy Sample, former major leaguer and now filmmaker, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. 